Hello, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really great to be among you. Today's a special day for our family. I, I threw my youngest son under the bus in the first service. He's not here to enjoy being rolled over now, but I'll say it again. My youngest son turns 18 today. So if you know Nate and see him, so I have no more children as of today. So my wife and I are done and ready to move on. That's how we see it. We're talking about the Bible this morning and how we can understand it. And I want to begin with an idea. Everyone on this planet has a sacred text. Everybody everywhere has a set of words that they use to give meaning, to guide, to direct, to shape their lives. Sometimes we form words into what we call mottos. And so we say things like, uh, be all you can be, just do it, think different, have it your way, no pain, no gain. And those phrases mean something to us so that they change the way we act. Sometimes we use words to tell stories. We tell stories about a mermaid who desperately wanted to become human and found love in the process. We tell stories about a young boy whose family left him at Christmas time, desperately tried to return home while he fought off robbers single-handedly. We tell stories about a young boy who discovered that he had a curious ability to control the force and single-handedly he was responsible for saving the galaxy. These collections of words lodge themselves within us and they change us. Some of us have words that were spoken to us, maybe by a parent or a teacher or a coach. And these words play themselves in our heads over and over again. Maybe they were words of encouragement. Maybe they were words of criticism. And sometimes these words make us do things we wouldn't ordinarily do. They justify odd behaviors and motivate decisions. Sometimes we hear them, actually hear them in our heads, years, decades even, after they were spoken. And the people that said them might be gone or even have passed away. I'll say it again. Everyone on this planet has a sacred text, a set of words that guides them, that shapes them, that motivates them. So the question then is not, will you allow a certain set of words to shape your life? The question is, which words will you allow to shape your life? As Rolanda said, we're in this series called Explore God, where we are answering, engaging with some of the deepest questions of faith. We're doing this along with over 150 other churches in the Bay Area. Here's a map showing all the churches that are doing this series, all the way down to Carmel, up to Santa Rosa, over almost as far as Stockton. And it's been really fun to be in this with other churches because we're sharing ideas and hearing how it went. And there are incredible stories coming out about how God has been using this collaboration to make himself known in the Bay Area. 
We started off the series three weeks ago or two weeks ago. Scott did a great job helping us think about what our purpose in life is. Last week, Dan Westman addressed the issue of whether God exists and helped us to think a little differently about how we know that he is actually there. And this morning, we're addressing the question about the Bible. Why do Christians believe that this book, that this particular set of words is any different than any other set of words? Why do we think this set of words should shape our life, should provide a window into reality, should form us in powerful ways? We're answering the question, is the Bible true? Now, this is a unique book. There's 66 what we call books within it. Uh, They're written by over 40 different authors. The writing of it spans at least a thousand years over four different continents. The book's been translated in its entirety into over 350 languages. And uh, let's see, sorry, 700 languages. And portions of it are available in over 3,500 different languages in the world. There are more copies of this book than any other book in the world on this planet. There are more references to it, more data. It's a remarkable set of words. But that alone isn't really enough to say that it's divine, to say that it's unique in those terms. So what is it that Christians think about this book that make it so special? Now, it's an important question because there are a lot of things about this book that make it hard to understand, that make it seem like it might not be true. So there are stories told that are told two different ways, and it seems like, well, that's a discrepancy. How can that be true? There are details recorded in this book that don't line up with external sources like archaeology or history or, or scientific theories, stuff like that, and you have to figure out that discrepancy. There are some topics like sexuality and gender and ethnicity and th- that are discussed in a way that doesn't seem to relate to our current culture. And then there are events that just don't seem possible. Radical healings, people raised from the dead, fantastic things that just seem like that's from a myth, not from reality. So how do we understand those things? How do we put those pieces together in a way that makes sense of this book. And what we're going to do this morning is really going to allow the Bible to speak for itself, to see what it says about itself, to see what it claims, and to evaluate this set of words based on the claims that it makes about itself. We're going to start by thinking of how it claims to be what it calls the word of God and what that looks like. Then we're going to see how it claims not only to reveal God, but to have purposes that it hopes to accomplish in the lives of its readers. And finally, we'll tackle some of those challenges that make it confusing, that make it hard to understand, and see how to put those pieces together. At the end of all this, my hope is that you would see that this is a special book, that there is something unique about it, and that it deserves the kind of attention that we give it as Christians because we believe that God speaks through these words. So the Bible is fond of calling itself the word of God. 
If you've been in church for a while, you may have heard that phrase. If you haven't, you may have heard Christians talk about the word of God. And that's a phrase that we sometimes use to describe this book. It comes directly from the book itself. In the Old Testament, that's the Hebrew Bible given to the Jewish people in the nation of Israel, written in Hebrew. The phrase that's most common is the word of the Lord. And so we hear this all throughout. I'll read a couple of references. This is Genesis 15.1. We hear, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. And then in the book of Psalms, which is the collection of poems and hymns, that are written out in praise to God, we have in Psalm 33, verse six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And so we have this idea of the word. And, and notice that it's word, not words. It's almost as if word is this other kind of category. When we get to the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible, it's written uh, in the first century after Jesus was resurrected, written in mostly in the language of Greek, we see the phrase word of God more often. So this comes up in Luke 11, verse 28, where we read uh, Jesus saying, blessed are those who hear the word of God. It's a similar phrase, slightly different from the Old Testament, who hear the word of God and keep it. We also hear in uh, Acts 18, Verse 11, he stayed a year and six months. This is referring to a man named Paul, the apostle Paul, who stayed in a city and taught them. And it says, teaching the word of God among them. Teaching him this thing that's called the word of God. So if the Bible refers to itself as the word of God, let's think for a few minutes about words. Words are one of, not the only, but one of the primary ways that I have to get something inside of me, inside of you. So there's this stuff in my head that I really would love to be in your head. So I package it up in a word or a set of words and I, and I throw it to you and you receive it and you unpackage it and you say, I have no idea what that man's talking about, right? Hopefully not. Hopefully you, you get that thing that I'm trying to communicate with words as the vehicle of what's essentially a relational interaction. Let me show you what I mean. To do that, I need two volunteers, people that are willing to come up and um, subject themselves to whatever plans I have for you over the next few minutes. So two volunteers. All right, come on up. One more. Thanks, George. Come on up. We can't be waiting around forever, right? All right. Remind me your name again. Terry Asa. Terry Asa. Thank you, Terry Asa. And George, good to see you. George, do you know Terry Asa? Yes. You do. Okay, great. So here's, here's the game. All right. Here's what we're going to do. Terry Asa, I'm going to ask you to tell George what your week was like the last seven days in a single word. You have one word to communicate your week to George. Magnificent. All right, that's something, thank you. Okay, now George, my question for you is, do you feel like you have a good sense of what Terriace's week was like? Her week was fantastic. Fantastic. Slightly different word than she used. Definitely. 
Can you elaborate? How, how good of a sense do you feel like you know the ups and downs, the details? Oh, she was very excited about her week. Um, <laughs> she felt really good about it. Um, it was just fabulous. Great. Okay, thank you. Okay. Notice how George um, elaborated on a single word, and he read between the lines. He, he, he added more detail because maybe there's a relationship there. Maybe, maybe he just knows how people work in general. One last question, Terry. Is that how, how did you feel having to communicate all of seven days in a single word? Blessed. Blessed. Why? Because all week I was filled with God's word and other people who were sharing that with me. And you appreciated the opportunity to Absolutely. communicate that? Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, George and Teresa. All right. Let's think about what we just witnessed. We have all just listened in on a conversation between two people. Um, now, we were third parties to this interchange, but what we saw was a relational encounter. And it was beautiful. Maybe that's a little strong, but, but we saw one person share the details of an experience and another person receive it. Now, the question for us as third parties to this conversation is how well do we have a sense for really understanding the details of Terriace's week? In the, first person, the per, in the first service, the person said, a little bit. And that's probably a good summary. We, we know the overall impression, but think about all of the conversations, all of the events, all of the feelings, all of the ups and downs, all the decisions, all the places traveled. How could you possibly communicate all of that truth in a single word? And yet, something true and powerful and meaningful was communicated by the word magnificence. How many words would it take to communicate everything? To fully download all the details of one person's week to another person? It'd be virtually impossible, right? How could you possibly communicate everything that was experienced, everything that was felt, all of those details? And so the communication doesn't communicate all truth but it does communicate something true. And we witnessed another person receiving that, unpacking it, and reacting to it. So when the Bible speaks of itself as the word of God, it is God himself, the infinite creator of the universe, glorious in power and majesty, full of love and mercy, communicating his very self to his creation through the vehicle of words. But there's more. Because the Bible doesn't just speak of itself as the word of God. The Bible also speaks of a certain human and refers to him as the word of God also. Some of you know where I'm going with this. That particular human is Jesus of Nazareth, a man that was born in the first century, who was executed by the Romans and whom Christians believe rose from the dead with a message of salvation to any who would believe in him. The Gospel of John is the fourth book of the New Testament. 
It's one of the four books that tells stories about Jesus. This is how this particular one opens. This is John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, if we skip down to verse 14, it describes who that Word is. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so now we have a human who is the word of God in the sense that this person communicates who God is, but we also have the Bible as the word of God. And so in a very real way, the Bible and the person of Jesus are parallel revelations of the nature of God and reality to his creation. So if we were to ask the question again, is the Bible true? We're really asking a question not just about the Bible, but we're asking a question about Jesus. So when we read this book, we have to understand that it is part of this package. And when we open these words, we have to not only look for truth, but we have to look for a person behind the words. More specifically, we look for Jesus in the Bible. Look for Jesus in the Bible. Because it is the word of God and he is the word of God. And there is this mysterious, inseparable relationship between the two. So that when we receive the words of this book, we're actually seeing a person who actually represents who God is, who's meant to fully convey the nature of the creator of the universe to us. So to ask, is the Bible true, is really to ask, does the Bible faithfully represent God to his creation? Is it an accurate portrayal of who God is? So let's think about that question. And if we go in that direction, then we have to ask, well, why is God revealing himself? What does he hope to accomplish? Because anytime there's communication going on, we know that we usually have some purpose behind the communication. Right now, I am using words in hope that you might understand something about the Bible. That hope might be wildly optimistic, but nonetheless, I have certain purposes for which I'm revealing something. Now, the Bible actually explains a lot of its purposes for its own revelation. Here's one example. This is 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. We read, all scripture is breathed out by God, that is, from his mouth, the words, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or mature, is another way to read that word, equipped for every good word. So now we see that this book is not only a revelation of who God is, but it is meant to change us. It is meant to be received in such a way that we are different because of the encounter. In fact, there's a theologian named Karl Barth who 
he said that this book doesn't actually become the word of God until it is received through faith. Now, I'm not sure we would quite go as far as what he's saying, but, but you get the idea that there, there's some type of interaction that's necessary with this book. So we could ask, well, does it work? Does the word of God accomplish the things that it tries to accomplish? And we could spend hours in this room sharing stories of how we've been taught by the word of God. I could spend hours telling how I've been corrected over and over again by the word of God, how I've been trained as a person, how these words, I've seen them in the lives of other people, change them dramatically, completely transform their life. Because not just the power of the words, but because it's clear that there's someone on the other side of the words. There's someone there speaking them to those who would hear. Let me suggest two ways that I experience someone on the other side of these words. The first is that the Bible is beautiful. It is a stunning work of art. I know a lot of you love the Bible. I know a lot of you love to study it because it is a privilege to plumb its depths. It's the kind of thing that you could read over and over again and always see something new. It is infinitely deep. The story the Bible tells of humankind created in perfection, but broken and desperate for repair and how God has chosen people from Noah to Abram to David to Deborah to Rahab to all of this line of people that are just like us. They're broken like us. They feel the things we feel. They make the mistakes we make. And yet God somehow chooses them for his purposes. And then finally, as the story climaxes, there's one human who manages to represent God perfectly, who in fact is God himself and loves so deeply that he gives up his life so that others can live. And then a small community that's left that takes that message, sees it spread throughout the world and change the planet in ways they could never have imagined over the last 2,000 years. That story is amazing. And some of the parts of it, some of the pieces are just exquisite. The poetry, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The characters, a young king who manages to defeat a giant but can't conquer the lust in his own heart. The connections across time. You have Moses, a prophet, who leads his people out of slavery from Egypt as a foreshadowing of an event 1,500 years later when Jesus will lead his people out of slavery to sin. You have the sweeping message from Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The hope for the future. There will be no more death, 
or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. How do you even talk about the beauty of these words? These words drip with something that makes it clear there is someone there, someone unlike us, someone who must be God on the other side. But not only are the words beautiful, they're also relevant. They make so much sense when we read them. Once you read the stories, they, they keep bouncing around in your head. There's, there's a person in a garden who made what seemed like a small mistake and ruined everything. If any of you have ever gardened, you've had that exact experience. <laughs> there's an entire people group who was rescued from slavery, but then once they left, they weren't even sure that it was going to be better until God revealed himself to them. You have this underdog story. How many times do we tell stories of underdogs? David versus Goliath, and we root for the one to win. You have the sacrifice of Jesus. You have the church, a small group of people who manages to change the world. And these stories that we read them, I, I'm always amazed. I read a story that's written 3,000 years ago about brothers and how one brother feels towards another. And I go, yeah, I have a brother. I felt exactly that. How is it possible that over a span of culture and language and time, it rings so true to our hearts? What about this one? How many of us are afraid that uh, our phones and our Alexa and Google Home and Apple HomeKit and whatever, that, that eventually they'll rise up and defeat us. We have this fear, right? But where would that come from unless, I mean, think about it. We're afraid that our creation, which we created to be good, would decide that it would rebel against us and take control over us. That sounds like a story from the Bible, doesn't it? Why would we fear that happening unless that story of a good creation rising up against its creator had been lodged within us? in some eternal way. I have a friend who works as a data scientist and her job is to create a dashboard to assemble all this random information and make sense of it so that it tells a single story for the person to read it. I think that's what the Bible does for us. It's, it collects all the various pieces of our experience and our thoughts and it assembles it under this umbrella into a dashboard where we can see our lives and how they make sense with the rest of the world. And so this book is beautiful. It is relevant. It almost insists that we recognize somebody is on the other side. So maybe, maybe my words have been partially successful and you're going, yeah, okay, I'm with you. It's beautiful, it's relevant, this is great. The Bible's awesome. But what about all the crazy parts? What about the parts we can't explain? What about the really weird parts that just seem like, how could that even be in there? Well, again, what I love about the Bible is that it's honest. It's honest even about those crazy parts. So here's a passage from 2 Peter. This is 
another apostle named Peter writing a letter to a young church. And this is what he says about the Bible. He says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. It's really interesting what he says. He says, the Bible's hard to understand. And sometimes because of that, it can be twisted to do harm rather than good. And that resonates with me. But why wouldn't we expect the Bible to be hard to understand? If this is a book written in three different languages over the course of a thousand years from one culture to another, we're separated by the most recent writings by about 2,000 years, why would we expect to read it and go, oh yeah, that makes total sense? Wouldn't we expect parts of it to be confusing? In fact, I'll go so far to say the fact that I don't understand some parts of the Bible makes it more believable to me than if it were all clear. Because if this is a record of an infinite God revealing himself to his creation through a vehicle of human means, words and authors and pages written down, if that's really what's going on, shouldn't I expect there to be some gaps in my ability? If I were going to write a Bible and I wanted the whole world to believe it, I'd make it really clear. <laughs> I would answer all the questions. I would make it so you read it and you go, okay, I know exactly what he's talking about. So the fact that it's not as clear as we hope it to be, to me means maybe that's because there's an infinite God behind it. Because if you have been married or if you've had a friend or a sibling or if you've ever communicated with another human, um, then you know that communication is really hard that it's really easy to think you said something clearly and the other person has no idea and takes it the exact opposite way. So if that happens really frequently for us, sometimes with people that we share a culture and a language and a history with, doesn't it make sense that that would happen when we read the words of the Bible? This became clear to me. I saw this thing on Twitter a few years ago about a guy who... Um, he, he, he insisted that his car needed 710. And so he went to the auto shop and he said, I need to buy some 710. And they said, sir, we don't, we don't know what you're talking about. He said, no, I'm telling you, my car needs 710. Please show me the 710. And they had no idea what he was talking about. So he's, finally, he pulled out a picture and this is what he showed them. He said, I need to buy some 710 for my car. <laughs> he was looking at it upside down. <laughs> Because communication is difficult. It's hard to transmit one idea from one person to another. The Bible has lots of questions that make it hard to understand. There are scientific questions of accuracy. Did the sun really go backwards for one day, like Isaiah describes? There are historical questions of accuracy. Is it possible really that the whole earth was covered in water in a grand flood? There are questions of, of cultural accuracy. How does it make sense in the Old Testament to excommunicate people because they have a skin disease? 
Now, the Bible doesn't always give sufficient answers to these questions. I think for those particular ones, um, there are good answers. But some of it is there so that we keep looking, so that we keep asking the questions. What does it mean to say a poem is true? Some people estimate that the Bible is up to 33% poetry. How do you evaluate the truth of a poem? So here's what I suggest. If you meet somebody who says, I've got the Bible figured out, don't believe them. And if you think I'm telling you that now, then I've miscommunicated. <laughs> you don't even believe me. Read the words. Go back to the words of the Bible. Read the words of this text and see for yourself whether it seems like there's someone on the other side speaking them to you, calling out to you. At one point, Jesus said that he actually speaks in things that are difficult to understand so that people would go deeper and find a deeper kind of meaning behind those stories. So press forward. Keep asking questions. Questions are great. Questions are the point. If you really want to know whether the Bible is reliable, then find out for yourself. Now let's go back to my original premise. I suggested that everyone on the planet has a sacred text, that we all have words that we use to shape us. And I and a lot of Christians believe that the words in this book are the best words to shape our lives. Not because they are an encyclopedia or because it's an instruction manual or because it lists every possible scenario I might encounter, but because we believe that there is a God of the universe who stands behind this word, speaking it to us, inviting us into relationship so that we might know him and be transformed by that relationship. So the question I have for you is, what words have you allowed to shape your life? If you're exploring faith in Christianity, you're, you're not a Christian, maybe you're curious about whether the Bible's true. Maybe there's other words that you've allowed, maybe unintentionally, to have a great impact on you. If you do count yourself a Christian, maybe you realize, you know, there's a lot of words that shouldn't be shaping my life that I've allowed to shape my life. And maybe there's a sense of a need to return to the Bible as the word of God to shape who you are. Whatever it is, my invitation to you is to read these words and see what they say. And one more thought about the words of this book is that there are a lot of questions that don't get answered. But there is at least one question that is answered abundantly clearly. And I think it is the question that burns deepest within each of our hearts. And that's simply the question, am I okay? Does anyone care about me? Is there anyone out there who sees me for who I am? Who knows me? Does anyone love me? And from the first page to the last, the word of God shouts at us. God loves you. God loves us with a love that we can't even begin to fully comprehend because it is infinite and eternal. 
And he loves us not in an idealistic sense because we've managed to convince him that we're lovable. He sees those things in me that I try to hide really hard. He sees those things in you. He sees the most unlovable parts of you. And he doesn't overlook them, but he forgives them. Because he sent his son Jesus to die so that you can be reconciled with him. So if there's something to believe, if you're going to ask the question, is the Bible true? You need to know that the Bible says that God loves you. So don't just believe the Bible, believe the message of the Bible that God loves you. And honestly, I think for some of us, this is what leads to a difficulty in believing the Bible. Because for some of us, it's hard to believe that God loves us. It's hard to accept that. It's hard to be vulnerable enough to admit that we need love and we're not sure we feel it. If that's you, if you don't yet know the love of Jesus, if you haven't come into a relationship with Christ, I'd love to talk to you after the service. I'd love to pray with you. If you have questions, we have this discussion group happening after this service. Please come up. Let's talk. Let's unpack these questions together because there are no words better suited to shape your life than the simple truth that God loves you more than you could ever know. Now, God doesn't just give us words to communicate his love for us. He also does stuff that tells us he loves us. And one of the things that he does is he gave us this ritual, a celebration that we can repeat over and over again as a way of affirming his love for us in a physical, tangible way. Uh, we usually call this communion or the Lord's table. Some people call it Eucharist. It's an event that points back to something that happened on Jesus's last night before he was executed, where he took bread and he told his followers that it represented his body, which was about to be broken. And he took a cup and he said, this represents my blood, which is about to be poured out. And that act of him dying on the cross is the ultimate demonstration of his love for us. In fact, Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said that, and then he did it. He laid down his life for you and I so that we could be reconciled with God. Now, this celebration is meant for people who believe in Christ, who have received that salvation. Um, if you're still asking questions, that's great. We're super glad you're here. If you're trying to figure that out, or even if you are a follower of Jesus, but you just need some, some space, you don't feel like this is the right time to engage in that, that's totally fine. Feel free to let the trays pass you by as they go um, and use that time to think or pray or plan your afternoon or whatever. If you are a follower of Jesus and you want to partake in this, then um, the ushers will, will pass this down the aisle. You can take the wafer and you can take that as soon as you receive it or um, if you want to reflect a bit, that's great. And then hold on to the cup once you receive it and we'll take that together. That's a way for us to acknowledge that this relationship with God that he invites us into is both something individual between us as individuals, but also it's something that's communal between all of us together. 
With that being said, uh, let me pray. Let me ask God to bless this time. Father, uh, we're so grateful for this book, for this word that you've given us. So grateful for the word of Jesus, where you represent yourself through a person. And we're grateful that you welcome our questions, that you engage with them, that you love to draw us into dialogue to understand more of who you are. We pray that we would be motivated, that your spirit would remind us to ask questions, to investigate, to read, to look for you. And Father, as we celebrate this table here, as as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, may this remind us of your love. May we be centered on your love for us. And may we allow those words to be the ones that shape us those words to be the ones that ring in our ears, that we play on tape, that guide our lives and set us free. Thank you, God. You are good and we are grateful for it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.